Thank you for listening to the Matt's Movie Reviews podcast, available on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Stitcher. Also, please follow Matt's Movie Reviews on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, Reddit, Instagram, and MeWe. And of course, be sure to visit mattsmoviereviews.net for the latest reviews, top 10 lists, and more. Now, on to the show. supposed to meet a man here to take me to the compound. Came from the west, right? It was getting pretty bad out that way now. Folks turning on each other. So why the compound? Seems a strange place to be heading. Once in a lifetime opportunity. What is it? Come here! Look at this! That's gold. We just found a pile of gold! One of us will have to get the excavator to get it out. I think I'll stay with the gold. You gotta watch your water. Gotta stay out of the sun. Ain't no joke out here. How much longer? Going as fast as I can. So you're here on your own? You need to leave. Out here, things start to get real strange. 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 Who is she? Where are you? Has she seen the gold? I think they're hiding something. You gotta get rid of her. <laughs> Where are you? I'm close. I did my part. I found it! <laughs> it's mine! <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 418. Releasing March 11 in theatres across the US is gold. Psychological thriller that stars Zac Efron as a drifter who finds himself in a war of attrition against the elements when he stumbles upon a large gold nugget in the middle of a scorching desert landscape. A film in which the rot of greed is presented in physical and symbolic form and features a fantastic performance by Zac Efron. Gold is also the latest film directed by Anthony Hayes, who also co-wrote and co-stars in the movie. And I'm glad to say that Anthony Hayes joins me now on the podcast. Anthony, I thank you so very much for talking to me today. No problem. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You know, when I first watched this film a few a couple of months back, the first thing I knew I wanted to ask you about is the landscape that you filmed on. And I was really curious, when it comes to putting this story together, what comes first? Is it story? Is it setting? Does one influence the other? Which one kind of comes first? Or is it just a chicken and egg situation where it's kind of like an organic channel <laughs> flow between the two? Yeah, it's, in, it's an interesting question because it was actually driven by another film that I was directing that fell over in pre-production. And this was a, um, a film called Stingray that uh, had a big cast in it and we got five weeks into uh, pre-production in Vancouver on it and then the finance fell out. And that whole um, film was uh, built on the, you know, we you need actors to facilitate finance 
and the finance fell out. And then I was so burned by the situation that I came back home and I talked to my writing partner, Polly, and said, we need to come up with a film that only has one actor in it because then if we could just bank that actor, then we know that the movie's going ahead and you don't have to mess around with, you know, building up an ensemble and all that kind of stuff. So that was the the initial idea of it. And then I wanted to explore certain themes about humanity and about where we're heading, about greed, um, and uh, what we value as people and send a warning shot, uh, send a warning shot essentially to say, you know, if we start start um, wanting things then more than connections with other humans, um, then we're in a world of trouble. And so it talks about global warming. It talks about, um, you know, the characters have no names. They have no backstory because in this world it's of no interest to anyone. All they're interested in is money and gold and survival. Um, and then to put that in the desert, obviously, it needed to be somewhere where you'd find a big chunk of gold. Mm. And I'd, I'd actually shot out in, um, in, in that desert, in that region, uh, probably for about five films over my acting career. And so I knew it really well and it had the infrastructure out there to house 200 crew in the middle of nowhere. And so it began to emerge like that, and then and then it began to emerge as as a, as a survival movie on top of those themes. So, I guess what came first was themes, um, and then and then uh, the survival elements, the genre elements in there. So you shot in South Australia, especially like around Lee Creek, I think, in the Flinders Ranges, and um, you know it's really interesting. In the in history of cinema, there's always people always talk about don't work on water because of horror stories working with water and affecting <laughs> equipment. You're doing the opposite. You're working in the dry. I'm just curious, though, when working in that kind of excessive heat, that kind of like nonstop humidity, what does that do not only to your equipment, uh, to your, you know, but also to like your crew as well? Because I'd imagine that, you know, working long hours and especially in that heat, it would have been a very kind of like enduring kind of process uh, throughout it all. Yeah, it was actually a real challenge, this movie. It was the hardest thing I've ever had to shoot. Um, it was extremely, extremely hot. There were sandstorms that were blasting through the location all the time. We, we actually lost two and a half days because we couldn't shoot and I only got eight seconds of footage in between the, the sandstorms. So mm. um, the, the the elements were huge. There were crew, you know, crew were fainting at stages, so we had to stop because it was too hot. Shoes were melting on the ground because the, the ground temperature was 90 degrees and we were we were always measuring it because we had a lot of dogs in this movie and wanted to shoot them and we had to keep an eye on the ground temperature to make sure it wasn't too hard on their feet and yeah. it ended up that it was. So we went and did all that stuff green screen in a, in a studio afterwards and didn't shoot uh, really any dogs on location in the end. Um So it was really grueling and even, you know, I needed to find a location that was... 360 degrees nothing and it's really challenging to find that and find that anywhere where you don't have to drive three hours in the morning and three hours back and then condense your work day so we found a, a private property that happened to have a clay pan on it that no one had ever shot in before and we went into that and we had to excavate the roads because the roads weren't good enough to get the trucks in so we had to come in and spend money on that and put down gravel and um and cut it you know cut out certain parts of the road and refill it and there were no trailers around so Zach couldn't ever sit in his trailer there was um, the, the only things we had was whatever we put up temporarily some uh, shelter to get away from the heat um, so it was 
brutal. It was brutal, and it was day in, day out brutal. We were shooting six days a week too because you, when you're shooting out there, you just want to get it done. Um, but everyone I'm so proud of because – and the equipment. You asked about the equipment. We lost steady cams because of all the dust storms. We lost uh, dollies because of the dust storm. So we were sending equipment back, you know, to the major cities and trying to get it back out in time. So it was it was a bit of chaos actually dealing with that stuff. Um, it's uh, you know water and deserts. I would say no. Yes, exactly. No, no um, to that. Yeah, I mean it, it's interesting really watching it too. The ambiguous nature in regards to um, uh, story and in, in character as well. You mentioned before the characters are nameless, the location is unknown. We know we're dealing with the future. We don't exactly know what time we're dealing with. Um, but on the other side of it, you yourself as a filmmaker, your actors, do you guys work on own backstories? Do you have kind of like backstories that you only you know of that wasn't presented in the screen that you were um, working off? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, when you come to any role, you you need to be armed with those things, and they weren't in the script. And I, I guess that is a fun part of you know the the process that Zach and I went through was that we did go through that, and he had his ideas about where his character was from. And when you watch the film, you you do get a hint that wherever he's come from is probably no better than where he's heading or where he is now, and that there is chaos. Um, you know, on the coastal regions of whatever continent they're on. Um, so, yeah, there was definitely a backstory there. And I had backstory as, you know, for myself, which fills out the character. But the intention was to leave it off the screen deliberately because when humanity is lost, we don't care about each other anymore. We don't care about each other's stories. Um, and then we just care about gold. And then, um, you know, then we're in a hell pit of humanity, <laughs> essentially. So, um, yeah. I mean, that's something I wrote in my review that the the tone and the look of the film kind of seems like to me like a hell on earth. And I think that's really personified in the themes as well. Kind of like almost like a purgatory in a sort of way. He's kind of like um, paying yeah. for some type of sins. In that role of, of, of Man One, essentially, that's what the character's name yeah. is, Man One, is um, Zac Efron. He does a, gives a really great performance. Um is it true that Joel Edgerton had a part in kind of like getting Zach introduced to you? It was it through the process yeah. of doing Stingray that kind of like you two got connected and then it moved on to where we are now in gold? Yeah, that was exactly it. Um, Joel was attached to Stingray, which is the film I was talking about before that fell over. Um, and uh, I was trying to get Zach for Stingray. And so um, Joel reached out to um, his agent because they shared an agent together. And uh, it's always hard cutting through those big hitting Hollywood agents for, you know, someone who's only made one small film before. And so Joel extended the courtesy to me and went and uh, vouched for me and then said, you know, Zach should do this film. So then Zach read Stingray first, actually, to to do that. And then he was, we had a couple of calls together and uh, the result of that was that he said, oh, I'm on the fence about doing Stingray, but I really want to work with that guy. I want to find something. And then luckily, which no filmmaker ever has, <laughs> he's already had gold, gold written and ready to go. So we pivoted really quickly and basically said, all right, well, what about this one? And then put that in front of him. And then he went, that's the one, that's the one. So it, you know, after someone like Zach comes on a film, obviously it's all systems go. The finance falls into place. And, you know, I was off one project and then on to gold and it all happened very fast the matt's movie reviews podcast is brought to you by 80s tees 80s tees is an online retailer of licensed t-shirts and pop culture gear from your favorite movies tv shows cartoons 
video games, comic books, and musicians. Celebrate your inner 80s nerd and click on the link in the show notes below to get the raddest retro t-shirts delivered to your door. The Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast is brought to you by Loot Crate. Founded in 2012, Loot Crate is the worldwide leader in fan subscription boxes. Loot Crate partners with industry leaders in entertainment, gaming, sports, and pop culture to deliver monthly themed crates, produce interactive experiences in digital content, and film original video productions. No matter what you geek out about, Loot Crate has a subscription box for you. To get your very own exclusive collectibles, apparel, and gear delivered to your door, be sure to click on the link in the show notes below. The Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast is also brought to you by Voodoo. Watch the latest movies and TV shows anytime, anywhere. No subscriptions, no contract. Enjoy stunning quality in up to 4K ultra high definition at home and download and watch on your mobile device as well. To rent and buy from over 100,000 titles or watch thousands of movies free with Voodoo Movies on us, be sure to click on the link in the show notes below. Now, back to the show. I think what a lot of people are really going to attach to is the physical transformation that, that Zach goes through throughout the film. To me, that's really interesting. I, I know what we're watching is a man that's kind of blistering under the sun, you know, just really becoming a victim of kind of like the, these elements that's around him. But to me, the makeup also kind of represents kind of like a rock coming from the inside out. And there's a, like one of my favorite films is The Exorcist. And I couldn't help but compare the makeup in this film to the makeup in that film. Because that film's about this girl, she's innocent, she's pure, but the evil from inside is kind of like personifying itself on the outside. And it seems to me in a certain way, and I could be wrong, and I probably am, that it feels like that kind of thing as well when we got to Zac Efron's uh, character in, in the movie. He's got this greed and this kind of stuff within him. He won't let go of his pride. He wants to have this stuff. And because of that, this kind of stuff ruptures on his face. It's not only the elements, it's the stress. And Jennifer Lanphy, I mean, she just does such a terrific job with that makeup. Number Amazing. one, is my kind of like take on it kind of like something in the wavelength of what you're going for um, philosophically wise? And number two, what's the process like in trying to put all that stuff on? Because I know you had some makeup in as well, but he really went through like on town with the blisters and everything else. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're actually spot on. You know, we had conversations about the picture of Dorian Gray, which is a you know mm. similar thing, that the, the um, rotting from the inside and then you can't help but project that on the, in the physical appearance. Um, so you're absolutely spot on. And, and you know, he doesn't start off that way and he just gets uglier and uglier. Well, as ugly as Zac Efron can be, but right. we, pushed, we pushed it pretty far. Um, but he certainly looks very different and beaten up and weathered. And that was exactly it is we, we, we needed to, because he was in the movie by himself for a long time, you needed a physical representation of where that character was at yeah. um, for the audience because he, there's no exposition in the film. He's not talking to anything and he has a brief moment with a scorpion, but we needed to externalise that greed and externalise um, all the inner inner workings of where he's going as a human. And so that plays out in the makeup all the way through the film. And like you said, Lamphy's um, work is just extraordinary. Yeah. And, um, and that she's also so fast and, um, 
you know, it was important to make it as realistic as possible. And there were all these different stages that we had to hit too. So it was like um, mild, then moderate, then more, then more, then more. And so to kind of be able to track all that stuff and then pull it off and pull it back on, you know, in a, in a day and turn that process around just in terms of logistics for um, shooting a film when I didn't have any other actors to shoot. So if we were going to change his makeup, we all had to sit around and wait. And so she... She was just super. She was so quick, and um, and he d- really does look different. He looks incredible in this, and by the end of it, it's quite shocking. Hmm. You know, you see quite shocked. You look at him just going, and you and you look back to the beginning of the film and go, that dude has gone from there to there in terms of you know what he looks like and where his souls travel to, and it's you know it really packs a punch. True. Something I really wanted to talk to you about is the art of the mullet. Um, you've, you've, you really, throughout your career in your, in your movies, I mean, you talked about how many times you worked in the desert, but that the hairstyle as well of the mullet is something that's really kind of stuck with you as, a, as an on-screen persona. Interestingly, interestingly enough, and, and really funnily to me, having grown up in the 80s, the hairstyles come back. We've, now the kids now are wearing it with pride. And Massive. AFL. It just it's crazy. Um, when it comes to this character of, of doing it, I imagine that not only would it be a practical hairstyle to have the walk scenery the heat and everything else, but it just kind of suits the character to the T as well, doesn't it? It, it does. I've always had fun in my career with uh, playing bad guys. I'm always either a murderer, a rapist, or a thief, or something horrid. You know, I've built a, a decent kind of niche based on that in in Australia. Um, and the mullet has also been a, a constant companion in a lot of those <laughs> those productions that I've done. And I hadn't actually wheeled it out for a while. I'd, no. uh, you know, gone into uh, more subdued characters and. And then I just it just it just felt right with this guy. I mean, he's a shithead. He's untrustworthy. Um, and I thought the mullet needs to make a return, and 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 also to make me look as harsh as possible, uh, yeah. contrast to Zach. And you know, I wanted the audience and him to get the feeling that when you know he sat in the car with me for the first time, that there was this head that was on the screen that you wouldn't want to be near, that yeah. you could smell him could smell this guy and you could kind of sense this guy so it really worked for that um and you know you're right it's like mullets are cool now i mean every afl player has them every i had one as a kid too so yeah me too you know i've had had one my whole life pretty much um and I always kind of said that, you know, in my career, all I do is really just have different facial hair, slightly different facial hair and slightly different hair, but just do the same performance and fool everyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> last last question here. You know, I remember watching 10 Empty back in 2008. In fact, one, yeah, of, the okay. first, one of the first interviews I ever did was with Daniel Fredrickson from that film. It was one of the first interviews. Interesting. Um, yeah, right. tape, on tape recorder, over the phone, transcribing wow. for hours and hours, like a 20-minute, 25-minute interview. I mean, this was your first directing gig since then. What do yeah. you take from that experience that you had back in 2008 with that film and bring as a director to this next one? Because it is a long time between dreams, but I imagine in between that time with all the different filmmakers that you worked with as well. Um, yeah. From like, you know, yeah, yeah, from anyway, but in between from like movies in like War Machine to like everything else as well. I imagine you have like picked up some new traits and new skills and also learned some lessons from that first one that you applied with this one. Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, one of the lessons I learned was to let things play out, give them a bit of air and not to have to um, push the performances too hard, um, that you could sit back and trust script a little bit more. 
Um, the other one was to not dive too far into performance and then not have a visual style and a, and a cinematic overview of, of the film. So they mm. were the lessons that I learned. Also about, you know, holding your ground on things. When you do your first film, um, everyone's got advice for you and not all of that advice works. Or if you take all of that advice, then it ends up being a bit of a hodgepodge and loses its vision as a thing. So, you know, I had a vision for this film for better or worse and um, people will really like it or not because it is a unique film and it is is it is devoid of a lot of uh, things that people expect like backstory and you know, character development and dialogue and all those sort of things. But we knew what it was and um, and we've executed it. And I think um, holding your ground on those sort of things and backing yourself is the only way to come out of a movie and be truly proud of it. Um, I remember uh, working with Rolf Tahir uh, a while ago and I, he's done so many great films and I said, what's your favourite part of the movie-making um, thing? And he said, well... I enjoy just being on set and making the movie because what happens to the movie and how it's received, you never, ever have any control over. He said, I've made films that I think are great that people hate and I've made films that I think suck and people think are great. And so the end result is just not the filmmaking experience um, and you have no control of it. So just enjoy what you're making and stick to your vision and and be quite brutal about it. And then, you know, just it builds you as a filmmaker and working, you know, I've worked three times with David Michaud since then. And I'm watching someone like him work and the confidence that he has and watching his career go from a tiny little indie Aussie film to, you know, and taking me along for the ride as well, which is nice of him. Mm. Um, people like Derek C in France was a big, um, the light between oceans to work with him and his slate of work. I mean, he, he had things that opened up my eyes as a performer that may be a better performer. And his was all about trust. His was all about allowing an actor the freedom to, to do their thing. Um, we would walk from the trailer, get collected from the trailer on, on the light between oceans and be put into a room that we've never seen. And all the actors would just be basically pushed into the door with no rehearsal and he'd be filming. And so he was always after that little bit of spark that wasn't rehearsed. And right. so there was a lot of that in um, that I didn't have the guts to do in 10 Empty. It was always very meticulously orchestrated and directed, but to just give things a bit of air and a bit of freedom and not be afraid to go, well, let's see what else is out there. And then if it doesn't work, you don't have to use it, but you will always find pockets of gold, as it were, if you uh <laughs> allow allow people that freedom to express themselves and especially when zach's coming from a place where he's not really done this sort of thing before to allow him that freedom and that rope and and to kind of gently guide him around and giving him the support he needs it's a fantastic performance from him and that builds confidence in actors so i mean i could talk about what i've learned for years <laughs> you know it could be a, a whole podcast in itself but um you know, you cherry pick the best things and it's just about holding tight to your vision, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And um, for everyone out there listening, March 11, theatres across the US is gold. Make sure you watch this thing in cinemas to all my listeners in the US because the cinematography, the makeup design, the, the sound effects as well, just the buzzing of the flies and the gulping of water almost <laughs> kind of play a soundtrack in their own. And um, it's interesting you talked about Rolf here because I was watching The Mission again uh, a few nights ago. Um, in this yeah. movie, Gold kind of reminds me of that style of filmmaking that used to be 
prevalent back in the day, the um, the sorcerers, the um, Aguirre mm. uh, Wrath of Gods, the, the missions, these films where the elements in the the, the, the the performances kind of come together to create something really rich in, in symbology and in, in, in philosophy. And I think you did a really great uh, job here, Anthony, and uh, thank you for your time today. And hopefully, you know, when that stingray is up and running and in, in, the, in theaters, we can talk about that in the future as well. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks very much for your support. I really appreciate it.